Welcome to the National Geographic Society. I know that's repetitious, but I've wanted to say that since I was 10. <laughs> I am a scientist. It's, it's, it's true. I am a scientist in one of the most difficult of sciences, a science where we look for what are probably the rarest sought after objects on the planet, the fossils of our ancestors on the continent of Africa. It is an odd science. It's a science where there are probably more fossil, uh, sorry, probably more scientists than there are fossils. And that creates a rather negative competitive environment, as some of you might imagine. I have been involved in a remarkable story of discovery for the past four years, one that has absolutely changed everything about my life. And I want to share that story of discovery with you and the lessons that have come out of that remarkable event when something amazing happens to you in your life. I began this journey of discovery, though, not with success, but with failure. And I think that's true of many discoveries. In this very hall, I delivered a lecture in 1997, accepting the National Geographic Research and Exploration Prize. And after that, I went up to some magnificent rooms upstairs where Gil Grosvenor and Bill Allen, the editor of National Geographic, said something that I hope all of you young people hear at some time in your life. Lee, you can have any amount of money you want to do anything you want. And I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to apply technology, technology to the search for these extraordinarily rare fossils. And so I took that, at that time, rather large amount of money. They didn't give me everything I asked for, but it was pretty close. And I bought some expensive technological tools, handheld GPSs, which had just been invented, $25,000 a piece. I bought satellite imagery with an amazing 30-meter pixel resolution <laughs> at $10,000 a sheet. The GPS said it could get you within a remarkable 15 meters of your exact location on planet Earth. <laughs> and off I went exploring, and I spent three years exploring southern Africa, concentrating eventually on an area just outside of Johannesburg called the Cradle of Humankind, probably one of the most explored areas for these very rare fossils on the planet. And during the course of that three-year uh, expedition, I raised the bar on the number of sites and localities we had. At that time, when I started, we knew of about 14 or 15 fossil-bearing sites and about 100 caves. And over three years of utilizing this technology, I took GPS coordinates of all the sites we knew, and I also mapped ones we didn't know about. I found four new fossil sites. That's not a lot, right? But it's almost another 25% to our knowledge. And then I began digging them, and I didn't find very much. But we are a science of scraps. And so I found some scraps, but I also work at a university. And as most of you would know who have ever been involved with the university, universities like nature and science papers. And tiny fragments of fossil hominids and antelopes and such that I was finding from these various sites don't make nature and science, generally. They can. When I made my first discoveries in South Africa in 1991, I found two hominid teeth, 
And this should tell you how rare things are. Two hominid teeth in 1991 at a site called Gladysville. It was the first new hominid site to be discovered in 48 years in southern Africa. And it made the pages of this magazine two teeth. That's because these rare fossils are usually fragmentary. About 90% of our record of those few thousand fossils that we have are made of isolated teeth. The rest are bits and pieces almost don't have any complete bones. Those skulls you see in magazines like this one number in a couple of dozen and never have we found a complete one. And so it was the middle 2005 into the 21st century that my university decided to close my exploration unit, of which I'd become director of, and move in a new, new direction, geometric, morphometrics, computer sciences, analyzing old fossils we'd already discovered was the way of the future. And as we moved 2006, we began looking for directors. They eventually, in 2007, hired a young man who'd been a former student of mine to take over my position. And I found myself in Christmas of 2007 doing what many of you do, surfing the internet, looking for a new place in life. What was I going to do now that exploration was dead? And it was at that moment that I became the last human being on planet Earth to discover Google Earth. And I did what all of you did when you discovered Google Earth. You uh, did what? You looked at your house, right? To see if you're lying naked by the swimming pool. I was not. You then put in places you're familiar with and you start searching. Then sometime you find out that when you put in GPS coordinates, it does that cool thing and zooms in from outer space and lands right on where you were looking for, right? Well, I had some of the most expensively obtained GPS coordinates on planet Earth and I plugged them in and it zoomed in from outer space onto nothing. Nor did the second one or third one. They were all wrong. Of course, you all know why they were all wrong. I had to Google it and found out that the United States government had put deliberate error into their satellites in the late 1990s and that that combined with the handheld GPS's inaccuracies had basically compounded my error. Every one of my dots was wrong. I'd wasted three years of exploration and a lot of money. And so I felt guilty. And so I began moving those dots onto the right dots. And I very quickly began to see patterns. I realized that these dots were in straight lines, that sometimes the fossil caves were clustering. And if those are caves, well, these look like caves. But I knew they weren't. This is the most explored area on planet Earth for these things. Everyone's looked there, including me. I'd walked over the area. But it bugged me enough, so in March 2008, I went out with my dog, Tao, and an A4 sheet of paper and a 3G card in my laptop. And I went as far away from the site where I'd made that discovery, right in the center of uh, Cradle of Humankind in 91, a place called Gladysville, because I knew that place and I knew there was nothing there to find. So I went as far as I could from there, actually into the city limits of a nearby city of Johannesburg, Krugersdorp, and on the first day I found 21 new cave sites. By June of that year, I'd found 600 new cave sites in the most explored area on planet Earth for those very things. And 40 new fossil sites, tripling the number that we knew. I was very excited. <laughs> By the end of June, moving into July, I'd moved back into the area of Gladysville, where I'd spent the last 17 years working. And of course, I began to find that there were caves everywhere. I had just missed them, and fossil sites. And on August the 1st, I moved into an area, the last valley that I was going to look at one kilometer from where I'd spent the last 17 years working. 
I knew I was not going to find anything here, but I began to see targets while I was surfing Google Earth. And the reason I knew I wasn't going to find anything in this area was because I'd been there. One of those four fossil sites was actually in the valley that you're about to see coming up in front of you right down there. I had walked that valley. I'd driven down the road you're about to fly over maybe three or 400 times in the last 17 years. But I was seeing targets, things that looked potentially like cave sites. And so I drove down this valley with my dog Tao in tow, and I stopped the car just over this hill, right next to this road that I'd driven down so many times, because I saw these targets. And as I stopped the car, I knew I was about to make a discovery of at least a cave site, because there was a lime miner's trackway that I had somehow missed. Lime miners had mined all these caves often, back in the late 19th and early 20th century. And so I walked up there, and I hope you're ready for this. I saw this. I heard the gasp. It's a grove of trees. But it told me that there was a cave site under there. That's what one looks like when it's collapsed. And when I walked into that cave site, the first rock I turned over had a large antelope bone in it, a fossil antelope bone. I was one kilometer from where I'd spent 17 years, and I didn't know there was a fossil site. But I was on a mapping mission. I took photographs of this. I mapped the area. I looked around. There were other fossils. Walked up the hill and found 46 new caves no scientist had ever put a pen on. And I went back home, and it disturbed me a little bit. And a young man came into my office. Because a week before this happened, we had a tragedy. The young man who was going to take over my directorship and lead us into the new generation of science was killed in a motorcycle accident in London. We'd already hired staff, computers, everything, all these young people to take over this new science. And one young man, Job Kibbe, a Kenyan, came into my office and said, would you be my supervisor? And I said, no, you're a lab guy, I'm a field guy. He said, please. I said, well, you know, I've got this site and it's been bothering me. Let's go look and see what it has to offer. And if it's good, I'll teach you to be a field guy. And he said, yes. And on August the 15th, we went back here, walked up, Job, myself, my dog Tao, and then my, my then nine-year-old son Matthew. It was a school holiday, I promise. And we walked into here, and I was explaining how we found it. And I said, okay, guys, go find fossils. There were bits of rock and stuff, because miners had touched this site briefly, leaving a sort of one-meter hole in the middle. And with saying that, Matthew and Tao were gone, rushing off into the high grass. I think they're going to go chase giraffe or zebra or leopards or whatever. They're all over the place out here, and I'll see them at lunchtime. And I turned to Job, and I said, I think they missed this because, and as I said that, Matthew said, Dad, I found a fossil. He was sitting about 15 meters off the site. He was holding a rock, and I almost didn't go look because I knew what he had found. He had found an antelope fossil because for every one of these early hominids, we, we find, we find 250,000 pieces of antelope. But he's my nine-year-old son, and just like you, you want to encourage fossil hunting. So I walked over. Five meters away, I saw this. And I knew from five meters his and my life were going to change forever. Because sitting in that block, I could see from five meters away was a hominid clavicle, an early human clavicle. That's this bone right here for the non-anatomists in the group. It's your collarbone. And only three animals have them in Africa. That's why it was so easy to recognize. Bats have them because they fly. Moles have them because they're big. But it was too big for that. And primates have them. And only amongst primates are those clavicles 
sigmoid or S-shaped, and this was one, and I happened to be at that moment the only world's expert on hominid clavicles. I did my PhD on them. All six fragments, a complete one had never been found, and I was looking at one. Matthew says, I cursed, I do not believe that. But I turned the block over and there sticking out of the back of it was the jaw of an early hominid. And then I could see other pieces and I realized we were probably looking at the rarest of the rare. I told you how rare these fossils are. But there's something truly rare about them. That is a thing we call partial skeletons. And up until that moment, there had been exactly seven of them found in all of history. Some of which you might know their names. Lucy, the Turkana boy. Three of those have no names. Numbers are so fragmentary and I was probably holding one. Took it back to the lab and indeed, we began to prepare it and quickly realized that it was the skeleton of a child. Two weeks later, when I had the national permit to go out there and work on the site, I went back and everyone in our lab went back. Everyone from Vitz University went back. 14 scientists, masters, PhDs, people with degrees in archeology, span anthropology, forensic anthropology, who like dogs went back out. Because I didn't tell you another thing about my field, we don't find these fossils. 99.9% .9 of the people who do what I do, those few thousand people, will never find a single piece of these in the field in the wild. Imagine going in science, you won't find anything. And so everyone was thinking to themselves, the nine-year-old could do it in a minute and a half. <laughs> Three hours later, we had found nothing not a piece you could call a hominin. We come from a British culture in South Africa, and so we do what British people do when things go bad. We broke for tea. And <laughs> I went over to this little hole, and I was staring at trying to figure how that block could get where Matthew had found it. Where could it have been? We'd all been in and out of this hole trying to replace it. We couldn't find anything. And the sun rose up on the back of it, and there sticking out of the wall was the proximal humerus of a hominin. And the reason I knew it was one, because I also did my PhD on those. I didn't say anything, I went down, I walked towards it, I saw the scapula in articulation. That's this bone right here. I did my PhD on those two. I still didn't say anything. I put my hand on the wall and two hominid teeth fell into my hand. Then I said something. That started an adventure for me of science, which was remarkable. I never for a moment thought that that, that was not the skeleton that Matthew had found because it was right there, clavicle, proximal humerus, and scapula. It'd only be about a month later we would realize that that was a second skeleton, something that had never happened in all of history. What you're looking at there are works in progress. Matthew's skeleton, now known as Carabo on the right, is singularly the most complete early hominid ever discovered. In fact, that's not even accurate because we just found the rest of his skeleton about uh, three months ago. He will be almost 100% complete, if not 100% complete, at two million years of age. The one on the left side is the one I found, that's the female, and she will be complete and we're just about probably to extract her head and have two of the most complete hominids ever discovered in history from this remarkable site that we would eventually call Malapa or my home. We would name them Australopithecus sediba and my colleagues forced me to put this picture up every time because for you know scientists being on the cover of science is well sort of like a rock star being on the cover of Rolling Stone. We announced it in April of 2010 and since then, an enormous team has grown around this discovery. I lead over 100 scientists publishing 
on this and researching on this from all across the globe. We're applying state-of-the-art technology that if we had found this fossil even five or six years ago, we would not have applied. You may have asked, why is there rock still attached to the base of the child? And the reason should be clear to you by now, that we can see through the rock now. Applying state-of-the-art X-ray technology, we simply take that and make it go away. Thus, we can leave that rock for future generations of scientists. It's our time capsule and gift to scientists who have not been born yet to test questions. We can extract things like that, yes, that is a brain, by doing this. Is that not remarkable? Your brain beats an image of itself on the inside of the, your skull, every heartbeat, and there it is, and we can extract it, and it is incredible, the morphology. We can see how old he was from his erupting teeth. And we can apply this level of technology across the board to not only these two skeletons, but the four other skeletons we found with them. And we haven't dug yet. Infants, adults, it's the richest single source of information about early human origins that has ever been discovered in the history of science, which we're pretty excited about. This is the most expensive picture you will ever see in your life, no matter what artwork you have seen. This cost 6.5 billion euros to create. Well, it didn't really. The instrument that created it was 6.5 billion euros, a synchrotron. That is the highest resolution ever scanned of a skull at 30 microns of the most complete hominid skull that has ever been discovered. We are looking inside the very structures of the bone. We can even move down into the scale of the daily incremental growth rates of the enamel. And so you will hear within a few years exactly how old this was up to nine days when he died. We have found organic material at the site. You will almost certainly hear sometime in the near future that we probably have discovered skin. So questions like hair color or fur, maybe even skin color, may not be out of reach. These remarkable fossils are giving us a look at a world that is unprecedented. We have published now, since April 2010, nine papers in Nature and Science. Probably an equal, equal number will come out next year, and another 10 papers and books on the subject because we are completely open access. We are experimenting with letting every scientist see every fossil we find, published or unpublished, the moment we find it. And it has made our science better and faster and sure cut down on a lot of the fights we have. These incredible fossils are revealing things that we would have never thought the fossil record of our family tree would reveal. Some of you may have seen just three months ago, we announced that we found food particles embedded in the calculus and tartar of their teeth. So we now know what they ate, not theoretically, but what this child ate in the weeks, months, and years before he died. He ate nuts and fruits, like you'd expect, and he ate bark. I'll explain that later. And so there are some lessons for this. First, we as humans have backyard syndrome. Do you all know what backyard syndrome is? Backyard syndrome is this. If I asked you to look around this room and study it for a moment, and then you walk outside, and I said, okay, now draw it, despite your drawing talents, 
you'd draw a pretty good job of it. You'd be able to place the podiums, all the stuff in it. If I asked you to draw your backyard or substitute that for your living room or bedroom, right now, you think you know it. But what you would draw is an amalgamation of your sort of past history with that, how you ideally see it, because that's the way the human brain works. We don't see the things we are most familiar with. This was discovered in the center of the most explored area on planet Earth for these very objects, so easy to see that a nine-year-old could see it. Because the scientists, like me and others, had backyard syndrome. And we need to eliminate that from whatever pursuit we do in life. Additionally, the other lesson that I learned was that I had deceived myself, as I imagine many of you had. How many of you in this audience have thought whatever career you choose, you are really literally going to only contribute incrementally to human knowledge, that all the cool stuff has been discovered, that last 300 years of exploration around this planet has found all the great things. Science has really discovered the principles of what we have. Well, the site of Malop and Australopithecus sediba says that's not true, that human beings may have walked over every square inch of this planet over the last several hundreds of years, but they may not have seen it or understood it. That is the duty and obligation of your generation. That is the power of technology and your minds and crowdsourcing that will explode our world of understanding as you in each of your areas begin to explore. But you first must understand that we truly haven't found everything. This was found by a nine-year-old in the middle of the most explored area on planet Earth for those objects. And it has been an immensely humbling experience to be involved with. It's at this point that I would usually say I am unworthy of this award because I truly do feel that. I sit in these audiences almost as a stranger staring out at the Secretary of Defense, the director of the CIA, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, Sylvia Earle, my goodness, and you, some of the brightest minds on this planet of your generation. I listen to you and I am humbled to be here. Wayne and Catherine, it is hard to express what it is for someone who digs in the dirt to stand amongst an audience like this. And so I don't want to accept it for myself. I want to accept it for explorers, scientists, people who take risk and fail, but then who look at that failure and examine it and get right back out there and do it again. Thank you very much.